Welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners and Pivotal Advisors. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you from lovely Gilbert, Arizona. It's cold for here, but uh, definitely not cold for where our guest is today. So we'll get to that here in just a second. But we are a podcast that's been running for about uh, two and a half years. We're on 130-something episodes. And we're a podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. Our sole focus is to prop up the small business owner, give them an opportunity to uh, tell their story, obviously their executive team as well, what it is that they're doing to build the economy in our country. We believe that it truly is the backbone of the American economy. So with that being said, we definitely have uh, a tycoon of small biz on the program with us today with a very unique background, a unique company. We've got Todd Asmus, President and Chief Strategy Officer of Shine Technologies, coming to us from Janesville, Wisconsin. So now you understand why it's colder where he is. Todd, welcome to the show. Austin, thank you for having me, and I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, you bet. We're excited to kind of hear your story and and, uh, talk about what it is that you guys are doing at Shine Technologies, but also your background I find, you know, fascinating because... Well, we'll get into it here in just a little bit, but your your background and, and kind of what led you to where you are today and kind of where you've spent your time as an entrepreneur, even though, you know, you didn't found this company, but uh, I, I consider you an entrepreneur at, at heart. So uh, before we jump into the business side, Todd, let's start by having you tell us about yourself personally. Where'd you grow up? What uh, What was life like growing up? Where'd you study? What did you study? Do you have kids of your own? Whatever you'd like to tell us about uh, about yourself personally. Great. Thank you, Austin. Um, so uh, Todd Asmuth grew up in Milwaukee, had a great experience growing up, went to a great school. I had the opportunity to see a lot of, of new things. And I was very interested in science, interested in business. Um, that led me to do a, a mechanical engineering degree at Yale University with the goal of understanding the way the world works and how you could bring new things into it. I, I did a, a career counseling session very early. I met with a, an industrial psychologist and he ran all these personality profile things and all these tests and said, you know, you seem to like new things and new challenges and you should work in new products. And I've been doing that for uh, 30 years since I graduated and have enjoyed every minute of it, of trying to bring new things into the world to improve our world, superior things, technologies, products that can help us do better. Um, and being part of that innovation cycle is what makes me tick. As you talk about new things, we also, my wife and I brought three kids into the world. Uh, they're teenagers now, um, one of them's 20. So 20, uh, 18 and 16 and starting their own journeys as they go to college and do new things. I've lived a bunch of places, done a bunch of different things, ended up back in Madison, Wisconsin um, and here in Janesville, Wisconsin where we're doing some really big new things, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, no, it sounds like a great journey. Some similarities in my background with with yours. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you're smarter than me for two reasons. One, you're an engineer and you went to Yale. So we'll, we'll just kind of get that out of the... I, of I, the- I'm going to disagree with you on both those points. I appreciate the compliment, um, but uh, 
I've made lots of mistakes. <laughs> maybe I'm maybe if I'm smart, it's because I've learned so many things from having done them the wrong way or or learned from smarter people. But I but again, I appreciate the compliment, Austin. Yeah, yeah, you bet. And the other thing is on on the kid front. So I only have two kids, but my kids are 22 and 19. So about the same, you know, close to the same age as, uh, as you. And, you know, you go through the college thing and, you know, and now my son is actually at, at 22, which it seems really young because today nobody gets married at that age, but he's about to propose to his girlfriend over the holidays and, and we'll get married next May. So well, hold on. Does she know this? I mean, we're live here, Austin, you know. <laughs> she knows, but I, I have a sneaking suspicion that she doesn't listen to uh, to my podcast. So <laughs> we, we, we will, <laughs> we've talked about it. I don't know if she's ever listened. I told her that there, so she's studying interior design. She was a prima ballerina and was, was going to go, you know, uh, be in the San Diego Ballet Company. Really great girl. But I did tell her that we had some interior designers on the program and she should go back and listen. But I just don't think business is necessarily her her forte, so to speak. Okay, understood. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, it's interesting to just kind of watch them grow up and learn things and make mistakes. I, I, I tell friends all the time that have younger kids, like, man, you know, I think we think that every stage, this has to be, the hardest stage, right? Teenagers has to be the hardest stage. But I think that parenting adult children is the toughest part because in some respects, they are truly adults and independent and want to, you know, make their own decisions, but they're not fully ready, right? I mean, we know that their brain is not fully formed until they're 25 years old in most cases. Girls a little bit earlier usually, but it's just funny because all of the logic is not quite there yet, even though they're fully grown individuals. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I've, I've learned a lot from having children, learned what I know and what I don't know and humbling at times, incredibly rewarding. I like to say that I, I learned uh, a lot of, about negotiations from having children. And the best negotiating book I've ever read is parenting with love and logic um, from learning what, you know, how, how you represent things and don't make idle threats. And, you know, children are brilliant negotiators. And I've, I've applied that to businesses and startups and children are, are like a startup. Um, but, you know, in some ways, but in, in other ways, you, you, you can't cross those lines. So it's uh, like you, though, I've learned a lot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So let's shift to the business side of things. You, you've got a pretty long and distinct background working specifically with, with startups. So what is it about startups that kind of gets you up in the morning, gets you excited and, uh, and makes you, you know, want to go out and do something? Well, creating something new is, is very rewarding. And there's lots of people who do things in creative. I mean, you're, you know, uh, you mentioned interior design. That's, that's a creative prospect. Coding is software is creative. Um, new things are creative. And I like to be part of that process and part of change and bringing things that are good for the for the world to market. And it's something that I'm I'm good at because you can you have to bring together a lot of different things. You have to bring together a technology and a team and the customer needs and the market and how you get there as well as the financing. And then you, it becomes a cycle and you go through things and you do it again. And then when you, it's very rewarding when you bring something to market and you've changed it and you grow and eventually it starts becoming less growth oriented. And that's when I like to exit. I like to say when I've been to the same 
trade show three times, you know, three years in a row with a product on the market, it's time for me to, to find uh, an exit, sell the company, have someone take over it, do whatever it is. But I, I like that growth prospect, that process and the thought of change, but only if it's something that's going to be useful. If it's just for the purpose of making money or taking share or doing things that's less interesting to me than, than doing something that's, um, that's unique and beneficial. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. I mean, I think we all, the reality is we, we see a lot of it in studies today, specifically around the younger generations in, you know, wanting to feel like there's a purpose to what they do professionally rather than just to make more money. Right. And so it, it's great to hear that, you know, that's one of the things that gets you out of, out of bed is, you know, you're, you're passionate about something that you're right. working on. Once you've gotten it to a certain point, then there's an opportunity to look at, at something else. So that's, that's great. It, it is. And, and now I, yeah, I'd be remiss not to say, I mean, it, we live in a capitalist society. And so to get the opportunity to change things and to go to the next one, you have to make a profit. You have to make an investment to do it. But it is a, to me, a scoreboard on the back end as opposed to on the front end. And when you've done things that are good for the world and superior and a better product, a better service, a lower cost, well, then you are going to have a, a business case that's good. You are going to produce a profit. You are going to build value for your shareholders, employees, customers, everything else. And then it's, you know, then you can make that exit and, and get the chance to move on to the next game. But it's got to start with, with a good business, a product, a thesis something that has value to it. Yeah, I mean, the, the reality is revenue and profits are a byproduct of the rest of it, right? Having a solid plan, having a solid product, having a solid service, whatever it is. And then, like you said, building the right team, et cetera, to get you there. Yeah, no, that's right. And if you, if you put them on a sequence, you have something you may create short-term value, but it's not sustainable. And you're not going to create long-term value and you're not going to create moats or barriers. And then you're truly only as good as your last day. And for me, that's always held less interest than doing something that's, that can be sustained over time. Yeah. So throughout your career, you've had an opportunity to, to be involved with several different companies, several different, you know, products. So what, what are the, what are some of the more unique experiences or companies or products that you've been involved with throughout your project? Yeah, there, there's been, it's been a lot of different things. And, uh, I, you know, I've been uh, an entrepreneur in, um, in six different ventures, you know, an operating role of running or a business or a team. I've been a, a board member or advisor to, to 10 and an investor in I, around 40. So I've seen a lot of things, I've done a lot of things, some strange markets, you know, I, um, uh, my first one coming out of college in the mid '90s was uh, stepping into a laser disc company. If you remember, there was a technology between uh, movies on tape, on you know VHS and Betamax, and the the DVDs, uh, which of course then have gone to all streaming at this point. You know, people say what's well, a DVD, but but as you look at transitional technologies and new technologies, that was the laser disc industry was a strange one. You know, I've been in, in a, a water technology company. Uh, I've been in adhesives and sealants. I've been in pet products. I helped write a business plan for uh, a woman entrepreneur, who, which, you know, will cut the feet off her pantyhose, you know, which ended up becoming Spanx, um, which is uh, Sarah Blakely, which is very well known. So I've seen and done uh, a lot of different things. But, it, you know, when you tell people you start off with, I used to be in the, in the laser disc industry and had the largest mail order laser disc company and almost sold it to Amazon. In 1995, that that's a good that's a, that's an odd one. Yeah, for sure. 
We had a we had a better mailing list than Amazon in 1995. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, it's funny to think about. Why I think Todd, you looked at the gray in my beard and you said, "I'll bet he remembers laser discs." <laughs> no, you're just a, you're a connoisseur of technology. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think uh, I think you're more of a salesman than people realize, Todd. Well, I, I can be, but when you do level set with people too, and and you know, jokes aside, and and tell the truth of of the ups and downs, and that's something as we talk about what you learn, you learn about the joke and this being the salesperson, then you, you have to learn to really level set and, and lead with the truth in your heart and, and, um, and put the, the salesmanship aside and just be as honest as you can and see where the chips fall. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. My, my partner and I had a meeting yesterday and we were talking to an executive team. One is the, the hundred percent owner. The other one is operating the, the business and the owner has kind of stepped away over the last couple of years and is allowing the operator to run the business. You know, we're talking about kind of where we go from here and in, in the future of their business and, and what the owner does and what the operator does and how does equity work and, and all those sorts of things. So I, I say that just to kind of give you the groundwork, but it was interesting to, to hear the exchange you know, so one of them being an operator and and never really done any sales, the other one built the organization to where it is and essentially had to do all of the sales to get it to that point. Yeah. And the operator's response or or thought process was, I asked, where do you want to go from here? What what do you want to do? And he said, I want to grow in a way that's that's smart and sustainable. And I said, okay, that's great, but what does that mean? Right. And he and he gives me, I said, you know, how many clients do you have and how many do you want to grow each year? And, you know, you can give me percentage or you can give me number of clients or you can give me revenue or whatever. Just give me something concrete. And his response was, well, I, I just want to make sure that we're growing in a way that that works for us, whatever that means. He said in the past, essentially, this guy would come in as the sales guy and sell everything and then dump it on our desks and say, make it work, right? <laughs> and I think that that happens a lot as salespeople, but sometimes you need somebody who's a little bit more grounded to say, here's what we can actually do. Here's what you need to go out and look at. Here's what you can promise. And here's what works. But the reality is most organizations need both of those people they just both may need to be molded or reined in a little bit differently at different times. Yeah, no, that really speaks to me. A lot of it is so often we do those things. We go out and we sell the product or we make the product and then say, sell it, or we sell so much product and they say, make it. And our strategy becomes reactive to what's happened to us or where we are, as opposed to doing it proactively and getting aligned and having the conflict up front. And I learned this one kind of a hard way. I had a company, a pet products company. We went out and the people had these great products and I figured out a way to sell them. And we added a bunch more products and some of them driven by customer innovation. And we had a lot of innovation. We built a business. We were really growing rapidly. And after a couple of years, I realized we had really different goals. I say we, three owners, two people who are another business and me, and I was the day-to-day -day person driving the products, the sales, the marketing, all of the outside things. And they were making the product, just like you said. And I figured out a couple of years in that I wanted to turn it into a $100 million a year company. They wanted it to be a 
10, maybe $15 million a year company. And that was enough. And they didn't want to take not just the risk, but the risk, the financing, the effort, the things to grow it to a much bigger scale. And we've done all the hard work to get it to that $10 million run rate and be on a path to 20 before I figured out that they didn't want that. And boy, I really wish I'd had that conversation earlier because we would have structured it differently. And that was okay. I sold my interest. I moved on. That company is still there. It's still in the exact same place. It's running, I don't know, 15, 20 million a year, very successful, but it doesn't have the growth and change and that larger opportunity that I wanted. And I think that's really typical of small businesses and exactly the point you were making where people will go out and do things and be reactive and say, we'll figure it out later instead of figuring out what do we want to be and, and, and doing that conversation on a regular basis. And you say strategic planning and people say, oh, that's, you know, what does that mean? Well, that means talking about what you want and what you can do and having the battles, having lots of little battles instead of letting things build up to a big one where people are unhappy or unaligned. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it comes down to communication and understanding what it is you truly want and then putting a plan in place to get there because, well, and then sometimes it's just that the owner. So most businesses, I mean, what, what you just described a 15 to $20 million a year revenue company that still puts you in a very small percentage of companies in our country, right? Very few actually get to that number. Mm -hmm. You want to build beyond to a hundred million in that particular company and probably in, in all companies, but that's, that's your focus, your vision. Not everybody shares that same vision, first of all, but mm -hmm. then flip side to that is sometimes even if they share the vision, they don't know how to get out of their own way and build the team around them that allows them to scale. Uh, that's, that's, that's very well said. And it's a big challenge. I have a, um, a friend who had this, this great small business of um, making industrial cleaners for coffee pots. And you go, oh, okay, boring coffee pots. And you know, this now, you know, well, then he sold it and he got Starbucks as a client and Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's and he turned into a very nice business. But then he needed a, a bigger team and a growth team. And it was interesting. I was kind of his board member of one because he didn't need a board member, but he needed a friend and someone he could uh, talk to or complain or get advice from sometimes. And uh, we did, and I helped him evaluate some acquisitions. But a lot of it was him hiring the team, but then learning to to let them have enough room and autonomy to grow. And I know that's a very typical story. And that's one that at Shine we've worked through as we've gone from 20 people to 400 with the, not just the executive team having to learn to, to, you know, we call it empowered accountability, but like first part is empower and trust people to make decisions, but then even a lot, a level below them having to be trained to make decisions and being okay with some of those decisions not working out. But that process, you know, whatever stage we're in of empowering other people and then holding them accountable is the key to growth, but it's really hard to do. Because as entrepreneurs, we like to have control. It's one of the reasons we do things. Yep, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, mo most entrepreneurs are that A-type personality. They like to drive, they like to control, and seeding that control is, is tough, but some get over it because they realize that they're hitting that plateau. And if they don't seed control and allow things to grow beyond them, then they'll never get to the next level. 
you'll never get to the next level and you should have just stayed where you are, where you were, or you're going to find yourself burned out all the time because you're working all the time trying to do things and figuring out, you know, gee, what's this person, what's wrong with this person, what's wrong with this person, wrong with their customer, as opposed to looking at yourself and being like, ah, you know, uh, I'm the problem. I'm the problem because I have to give up some levels of control to achieve if I'm going to grow and if the business is going to grow. Yep, absolutely. So obviously that's a lesson that, that you know, you may have learned along the way, or maybe you just innately knew that along the way, but what are some other tough business lessons that you've learned along, along your journey? Well, one that, that I've spent a lot of time on a lot of time learning is people usually say when a business doesn't succeed or a product doesn't succeed or a, a venture doesn't succeed, they say, oh, I just ran out of time. You know, I wasn't given enough time or something went wrong against me. You know, it's not my fault. And something that I've learned is that time and money are two sides of the same coin. And if you're in a startup that's not making money, you only have enough time until you run out of money. And, and so you have to figure out either how am I going to get to profitability quickly on this, or if I'm going to be raising more money, what do I need to do and de-risk to get to being fundable by the next set of people? And so I spent a lot of time in startups learning that lesson or learning how to apply it the best way. And learning to, you know, I mean, there's a couple parts of that. One is, is having a really solid plan, understanding where you're going to build value, what you need to do, who's going to do what. That's one part. The other part is identifying where your next money is coming from. Who are the types of people? And don't wait until you need their money. Be like, hey, I'm raising money. You know, do you want to invest? You have to talk to them, you know, months, if not years before you're going to get money from them. And if you're in that kind of slow burn, continual funding process of talking to people and you say, we're going to do this milestone and then we're going to raise around and they go, okay. And then six months later, you say, we did that milestone and here's the round. Now they're really interested because you've, you prove you can do things before they have to put money in. And then the third part about that is never having, never running out of money. You have to start raising money. We say here we have a we when we run under 12 months of funding left is when we open the next funding round. So you have to then, if you're thinking of that six or 12 months ahead of time, when you have two years of money, is when you start thinking what are the milestones and who's going to fund the next round and who could do it. And you have to really be ahead of it because if you do something great, but then you ask, go ask people for money and they weren't ready for it, or it's in the wrong market conditions, like today, for example, then you don't get any credit for, for what you've built and you either don't get it funded and it dies, or you get it funded and on terms that you don't think are worth it. And so you have to be really strategic. And this all comes back to, I learned something, my great board member, and he had a couple of things he said all the time, but the one that stuck the most was there are two ways to build a startup and bring a new product to market. There's the best way to do it technologically, operationally, the best business way to do it. And then there's the best way to finance it. And they're not always the same thing. And the path you take to finance something, you may take very different steps and milestones to do that than you would if you had all the money in the world. And you may find the path changes and value changes. And that's what's kind of fun to me is how the journey changes based on 
how a business evolves and how your funding evolves. Yeah, I think it's a really great point. I mean, the reality is not everybody who listens to our program or is in business is ever going to raise money or has raised money. So that may not make 100% sense to them. But what does make sense to most anyway, and again, not everybody likes sports the way I do, but what you just described reminds me of a college coach that's put in to take over a program. And at the end of that contract, when, or not even at the end of the contract, when they're let go, the response is, I wasn't given enough time to build the program, right? Yeah, right. And that's exactly what you just described, just from a business standpoint. Now, college athletics has changed that because now there's the transfer portal and it's win and win now and no excuses because you can pick up new players every single year. You don't have to wait to build your program through recruiting, et cetera. But you know, that that's, that's very true. Like sometimes doing it one way is the best way from a manufacturing standpoint or a product development standpoint, but sometimes the financing doesn't align with that. Right. And, and there's raising money for, you know, uh, the, you know, the venture back startup, that's one side of things, but to your point, most businesses, that's not what they're doing, but how does that apply to them? Well, if you need uh, a loan to do new equipment or to do a new building or to finance a new product line, or you're going to take your own precious capital to finance that and do it or to hire a new salesperson. It's all that same thing of how are you going, what's the plan for something to build value or to, to do growth or to expand? How, what's that plan and what does it look like? How do you sell a new customer on something? It's the same set of steps and looking at the way that you think it should be done versus maybe the way they think it should be done. You know, does the bank loan, they may have a different set of requirements than you would uh, or than I would. But so does a big new customer. They, I always say with customers, figure out, understand. A lot of people go and they say to a customer, what do you need? And they say this and they go out and they do it and they say, here it is, buy it. And then you go, they go, oh, well, great. I, I just got to tell my boss about this. He doesn't know or, you know, decision maker. And so you have to, it's still this difference of the steps that you think it is versus steps that other people think. And looking at two sides of the same coin because I don't know how many times early in my career I did just that, selling something new and realizing that I didn't understand my customer's process of buying or signing off on something or who needed to be involved. And so it's those processes you learn the hard way of playing the end game and playing it backwards, not just playing forwards. So yeah. and to your point on college coaches, you know, boy, that cycle's gotten even shorter. I mean... You know, I, uh, again, live in Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin, had a coach that was very successful, but the game changed on him with the portal and, and NIL and everything. He had a great record, but wasn't on a trend to go forward, and they made a change because the cycle was a five-year cycle, and it was three. Now it's year to year. Are you making progress? And that's a lot of businesses start looking that way, too. Yeah, no no doubt about it. The The other thing that I I feel I need to mention though is, you know, a really important principle of what you just described though is every business, right? So whether you're going out for funding or or not, every business needs to be forecasting their cash flows and understanding what their burn rate and what their run rate looks like. So that again, they're not surprised and they're taking an emergency loan to cover payroll or, you know, whatever the case may be because they didn't forecast for it. Well, and then forecasting, and then again, in 
today's world changing. Look at the last couple of years and so many good businesses having huge problems because of COVID, changing markets, inflation, changing financial conditions. So to your point, you have to look at it and then you have to reforecast it when things change and look at where it's going and understand what could go wrong or, or where your opportunities are from a changing market to look at things differently and plan differently. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to do because we like living in the present and just dealing with our employees and selling our customers and that whether it's strategic planning or forecasting or getting together, having tough conversations about what's changing. That's, that's, that's always to me, the hard part is having that conflict before things go wrong, but you're so much better off front loading. What you think, what you made me think of when you mentioned, you know, COVID changing things. I mean, think about how many companies, this word gets overused, but pivoted during that time period and turned their whatever t-shirt manufacturing plant into a PPE manufacturing plant, masks and, you know, everything else. And so sometimes you just have to be flexible and able to adjust when economic climates adjust. Well, you do. And, and that to me is, again, a reason I like being in, in small businesses because you can change quickly. You can, you can meet a need, you can change your plan. Uh, you can add a thing, you know, I mean, one thing that we're really proud of at Shine is we spent, you know, many years getting organized to bring on a, a, a product that helps diagnose heart disease and cancer. It's a product the market uses today. We're manufacturing it in a, in a new way. Same product the market uses. No one's making it in the U.S. Long story there. But the long story short is, and it's a 10-year process to get new manufacturing up because it's nuclear. And the regulatory and technology construction takes 10 years. About four years ago, we started hearing there was another product that was maybe coming to market. It was interesting that could help people uh, treat cancers. And it was a drug that people were making, but it needed a different isotope. And we said, oh, well, you know, we could make that. And we had some people who said, well, no, finish what you're doing already first. And we said, well, we're going to look at this and maybe we can do it also. And let's start stage gate, you know, looking at this and being a lean startup and testing and trying to spend a little bit of money to figure out if we could and do it quickly. And, you know, today we're, we're still finishing the diagnostic product. We've got about one year left to commercialize but we're in production and have revenue on this therapeutic product and we're helping people treat cancers and that's growing rapidly. It's going to be a huge market. We looked at it because we were able to think, like you said, you know, and be nimble and change with changing market conditions. But it was hard even for us to be as a startup to change the path and try something new because you risk distracting yourself. So, but again, that's what's, that's what's fun in being in a small business. You can try these things and see if they work. Um, and if they don't, you keep doing what you were doing. But if they do, you may find great opportunities. And, and to your point earlier, I mean, you now have a product that's generating revenue, which right. makes it easier to go out and raise for the diagnostic product that is not generating revenue yet. Oh, boy. Yeah, it makes it much easier. And people, they like seeing, you know, more shots on goal. You know, again, it was a sports analogy. You're going there that, you know, if it's not all or nothing, not all your eggs in one basket, you know, we've got a couple different things we're doing now, other growth prospects and people like seeing that diversification of opportunity and as well, a team that can do more than one thing, you know, that's um, that leverage of the skills, the people, which is, you talk about technology and we've got a lot of technology, but, but it's the, at the end of the day, it's the people who get you there 
and leveraging those people. They can do more than one thing if you challenge them. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. We'll hear a quick call to action for our audience members and uh, and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about you know what Shine's really doing and, and what the market's like for startups today. Hey there, Tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right, Tycoons, welcome back to the program. Austin Peterson here, your host with Todd Asmith, our guest today from Shine Technologies coming to us from Wisconsin, where I'm sure it's cold and probably snowing. What, what can you tell me, Todd? Actually, you got a window behind you. I keep thinking it's a picture and then yeah. I'll see a truck drive through it. So. <laughs> well, it shows we're still working on things. No, it, you're right about the weather. It's cold. It's not snowing right now. It did snow last week. We got about four inches, um, but it... Uh, it still hasn't taken all the way yet. I I, I think people are better off um, where you are in terms of uh, in terms of weather. But it's it's cold. It's a little bit gray. But the um, the team is still out there working. And yeah, I mean that is that's one of our uh, production facilities behind me. So it's it's always fun to watch it grow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, for Arizona, it's cold. It's fifty-two degrees, and it's gray, and it's been raining a lot. I talked to. I know why it's raining because I talked to somebody in Salt Lake City about an hour ago, and it's dumping a bunch of snow in Salt Lake City. So that explains why uh, why it's raining and cold here. But you're right. This time of year, this is a wonderful place to live. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, that's uh, that. That makes a lot of sense, and I'm. I'm. I, how about this? I'm, I'm very happy for you. <laughs> well, you've got great summers, so we we, we kind of trade that. No, no, and I cho- I chose it. We love to live here and for all the ups and downs, and but we do like to visit Arizona in the winter. So, Yeah, for sure. Let's dig in a little bit more on Shine. I mean, I don't think everybody, you mentioned, you know, you've got the cancer treatment, you've got the diagnostic tool that's, that's coming out, but then you kind of throw out nuclear fusion and people are like, wait, what? Like, right. how are we doing this and how does that work? So just kind of give us the the non-engineer or non-doctor version of what you guys do with nuclear fusion and, and what you're what you're building there. Yeah, no, no, gladly, Austin. And and you know, we um I have the pleasure of working for, you know, a brilliant founder, uh, Greg Pfeiffer, who is a, a nuclear engineering PhD. And, and while I do have a background in, me, in mechanical engineering, I like to say what it really makes me is a translator. And, and I take all the things that this brilliant team does and I, I make sure that people can understand it. And the customers, investors, uh, our neighbors in the community to make sure they understand what we're doing and, and see value in it. Under the hood, we're a nuclear technology company. We have a, a fusion technology that does things that fusion can do today. And people, you say fusion, they say energy. And there was actually this wonderful a Department of Energy milestone they hit today. They made net positive energy from fusion. They're progressing. It's nowhere near having uh, been, you know, energy on the grid yet, but it's a really positive step towards a, a great form of energy uh, that's really clean. But we're doing what fusion can be used for commercially today. 
And what you do when you fuse things together, you make energy and you make neutrons. And a neutron is a particle, and I'm not going to get too deep into it, but you can use it for things. And people understand x-rays, right? Um, an x-ray goes out and it, you can take a picture of things. It's one thing an x-ray can do. And, and so you can see, like you can go to a doctor's office, you break, they do an x-ray and you can see uh, the, you can go, the x-ray goes through the soft tissue of our skin and our muscle and it shows uh, flaws in the heart tissue underneath. A neutrons work a lot like x-rays, but the opposite. You can image something with a neutron, you can shoot something with a neutron, and it goes through the hard materials to find flaws in the soft materials that are in there. And so, for example, you could take an airplane turbine blade, a blade that goes in front of an airplane, which has is a composite material, hard and soft surfaces, and you can image it with neutrons and find flaws. And we would much rather find a flaw in a turbine blade before it goes on the airplane rather than after. And some very small percentage of them have flaws, but those are things that we today take pictures of with neutrons and we say, this one's good and this one's bad. So non-destructive testing. And we've been doing this for a while. So we use fusion to make a neutron, but then the application is taking pictures for aerospace and defense companies. And we have a nice business in that. It's growing rapidly, servicing lots of customers, and we're really excited about it. Now, there's the next stage when you, you get better at fusion. When we say better, like a thousand times more neutrons, you can do it, use it to create medical products. And so we're using fusion to create medical products that can be used again for first imaging. Uh, the doctor can inject this radioactive particle into your body. And people say, oh, don't, don't do that. Well, we do that today. And, you know, radiation is everywhere. The sun is radioactive. We get a lot of dose from the sun. When you fly in an airplane, you get even more because you're closer to the sun. And radiation is bad in excessive amounts, but in small amounts, it can be really useful because we can put radiation inside our body. Literally, the product shines the light outside the body, hence the company's name, you know, Shine. And the doctor can watch blood flow through the heart and see if you have a problem, see if your heart is not having the blood flow properly. If that's the case, they do a minor outpatient procedure. They put a stent in and you go about your life. If you don't do this, well, and it builds up over time, you can have a heart attack. That's a big problem. And so we are, again, uh, nine years into a 10-year process to make the diagnostic isotope, diagnostic product that's used for the detection of heart disease and cancer. Um, that's the plant behind me, you know, over my shoulder here, Janesville, Wisconsin. We've been working for, for you know, nine years on it, one, one to go, lots of regulatory, lots of technology, hundreds of engineers. Lots of vendors. I mean, we, you know, uh, 1,800 trucks of concrete, you know, uh, loads and loads of steel rebar, all sorts of complexity. But at the end of the day, it's a nuclear product that makes a medical product. And that's what people need. And 20 million Americans each year get procedures using that, and we don't make it here. And so it's a great opportunity to take it's a technology story, it's an infrastructure story, and it's an American medical story. And so that's that we're proud to work on that. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we found another related product along the way and thing that could be done where we could use the same team, some of the same technologies, but some different to make a therapeutic product, something that helps treat cancers. And, um, you know, Novartis is a big drug company. They have a product that uh, helps treat prostate cancer, late stage prostate cancer, where you're probably going to die. And if you take their product, you're probably going to live and have a good life. And that's an amazing thing to be part of. They make a drug. We make the isotope, the drug finds the cancer, the isotope kills it. And so it's kind of a smart bomb for cancer, new technology, 
Lots of other companies looking at drugs for this space. So we're working on that. If we get really good at those things, we and we keep getting better at fusion, um, we're going to work on recycling nuclear waste. There's all this power plants around the country, around the world that make energy by fissioning uranium, which is great. It's clean. It's consistent. You know, there's no there's no particulates in the air. There's no carbon emissions, but it's got a problem. It, they, there's nuclear waste and stocking up. And we think that waste has value. We say recycling it because what we want to do is take the parts of it that can be reused for energy and help these power plants reuse it. And the French do it. So why can't we? And so we're excited to work on that. If we get really good at that, maybe someday we get to fusion energy, which would be an unbelievable thing, you know, unlimited amounts of power with no waste, consistent power. But that's a ways away. And so what we like to say is we're today's fusion company because with the imaging of turbine blades, with making medical products, we can build a business. We can add a lot of value to society. We can do a great job for our employees and investors and then, and then keep working on bigger problems over time. And I know that's a lot to go through, but it's technology that works for today's markets while you, then you use your team to grow. And I like to make an analogy. There was a guy named Peter Thiel who was um, founded PayPal with Elon Musk. And then he was the first investor in Facebook. Um, he wrote a book called Zero to One and says the best way to dominate a big market is first dominate a small one and build the team and the capabilities and the business to grow. And I think that applies to, to you know, as you look at it, of all the people who listen to your podcast and all the work that you do, that applies to anybody. Get really good at what you're doing first and then figure out how to grow as opposed to trying to take on the biggest challenge in the world coming out of the gates. Yeah. So speaking of that, I mean, what what does the competitive landscape look like for you guys, right? How, how many other companies are out there in your space? Yeah. Well, and so each one of those different opportunities has its own competitive market. But, but the first two, you know, the taking pictures for aerospace and defense and these medical markets, most of the competition is based on government-funded reactors. That are, that are research reactors that are 50, 60 years old or older. And so a lot of what we're doing is competing with state-of-the-art from 1960. And it's kind of a weird thing with nuclear. And they built these, these, these reactors to do research on energy and weapons in the 60s. And then they tried to figure out other applications for them. And part of it could be taking pictures. Part of it could be making these medical isotopes. So short-term from those, we've got a lot of competition. but long-term they're all going away. A number of these reactors have retired at, as they get around the age of 60. Some of the ones that are going today are, are there just for human health. And they're being held together. And so short-term, we've got a lot of competition. Long-term, a lot of it goes away. And especially if we do our job, because if we do our job well and we're up 24-7, we're reliable, then the governments that are subsidizing those reactors and keeping them alive for human health can allow them to go away and know the markets are going to be served. Now, there are also other prospective startups coming in, but we focus more on the incumbent people because we have good enough technology that if we do our job, we know we'll be successful. And if other people come to market, then we'll, have, we'll deal with that. But, but our biggest challenge is ourselves and making sure we get the job done. It's interesting to have a competitive landscape like that. I mean, one that's you know essentially going to go away or a good portion of your comp competition that's going to go away. So 
knowing that that obviously helps. There are others that are going to come behind. There always are, but right. what are the biggest challenges, I guess, that you face today compared to what you're going to face in the next 10 years? Yeah. So the biggest challenge is we have a couple of things that are in revenue and working today, right? And those we just need to execute and do better and grow. This, the imaging for aerospace and defense, the the product, the cancer therapeutic product, got one building producing. We've got another one coming online. Our, still our facility, the one behind me that makes the diagnostic product, we have to bring it online. So the, you know, the biggest challenge is when you have technology or a new building, finishing it and getting to reliable. Finishing doing new things is hard, you know? And, and so that, that execution, an execution and doing it on a timely manner with something new, and the supply chain challenges of today's world, as you look at pandemic and inflation and the getting things from vendors, getting them done right, communicating with people. A lot of it really comes down to project management and execution. And that's all, that's all people being organized. And so that's the biggest challenge for us for the next two years is, is executing project management, people, vendors, staying on the same page in a, in a challenging world. <laughs> it has been for a couple of years. As you look from there, then it's then it's finding the right growth path, you know, and doing things and doing things that make sense and doing it still. We we really work on a on a stage gate process, planning, strategic planning, doing budgeting, things we talked about earlier, applying that to projects and making sure, you know, I mean it's it's a classic lean startup methodology. And what that means to me is don't make a commitment to something, don't go all in on something when you can test. Can you make a little bit of product or make a small plant before you do a big one? Can you get vent, get a customer to do to say that they'll order something before you have to go and invest and go make it? How can you take a big problem, cut it into little pieces, and solve them one at a time? Ideally, the most the hardest parts of it first, or the riskiest parts first. So to answer your question succinctly, the first challenge is executing and finishing the things we've got in front of us and doing a good job of project management. Then the second thing is looking at growth and doing it in that stage gate process of where you, you break a big problem into lots of small ones and you solve them one at a time. Where does regulation, lack of understanding, perceived lack of safety in this, you know, this technology, where does that all factor in for you guys? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. That's a mouthful right there. And I'll try to keep it at a high level, but you can dig in wherever you want. The regulatory environment is like the strictest in the world, as you talk about nuclear. Our regulatory process, we filed our first application in 2013, and we'd spent, you know, a year getting ready to file. The regulator is just at the point of of finishing their review and getting ready to issue their second and final permit. So the, Regulatory is hard, and we've had, you know, probably an average of 100 people working on it over that time. That's been a real challenge. <laughs> Excuse me. See, that's what it does to me as you look at the <laughs> regulatory environment. Um, but but it's also, it's a very fair regulator, and, and they're just concerned about safety. Um, and so if you prove things are safe, they're going to be fine. We have technologies that are inherently safe, are, and again, I'm not going to get too technical here, but we're accelerator driven instead of a reactor. And so we're nowhere near running at critical or a self-sustaining reaction. Well, what does that mean? Well, 
if a reactor is a car going down a hill and you got to apply the brakes all the time to keep it safe, we're a car going up a hill. Unless you have your foot on the gas, it's it's not going to keep going. You know, it's going to slow down if you take your foot off the gas. So with that inherent safety, it's made it easier, believe it or not, even with a nine-year regulatory process. But the other thing is proving you're safe to all the time to your employees, to your neighbors, you know. And so we really work on a culture of safety to make sure people understand and everyone's involved in it. And so that's a challenge to look at, especially as you try to stay lean. And then there's that ongoing always perception of it. So all those things, long story short, regulatory is a big challenge. Safety is a big challenge. The way you build your culture around it, then it becomes a really big barrier to entry. Because as you talk about competition, you know, one of the things on the diagnostic product we say is who's going to be nuts enough to follow us when it took us 10 years, you know, $400 million, even with some real big technology advantages. But that's the opportunity and where we, we try to finish. You also have then this team that's come through this crucible that is prepared to do new things, you know, and what's the next plant and what's the next regulatory process? Because you've, you've learned a lot of lessons along the way. I look at it and I think, you know, there, there's got to be a big light at the end of the tunnel to be willing to go through a 10-year approval process, right? And I don't mean money. I mean, obviously, there's probably, you know, pretty good amounts of money in this, but it's more about you've got to truly believe that this technology is going to revolutionize something, right? Whether it's the diagnostics or the treatments or for the aerospace testing, you know, whatever it is, or the combination of all of it, you've got to truly believe in that to say, I'm going to bet on this for 10 years to get my investors money back and then hopefully make some money. But I believe so much that it's going to impact lives that I'm willing to do it. That's right. Well, and to be fair, we didn't think it was going to take 10 when we started. We were, we were thinking it might be, it might be a little shorter than that. Um, and to your point on the, the light at the end of the tunnel, what I like to say to people is, you know, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel and we're pretty sure it's not a train coming at us, you know, at this point. Um, but you have to be convinced of that. You also, you find other opportunities along the way and it's worth it in a couple of ways. It's worth it for, bringing the product to market for you know patients and the customers who are going to benefit from it. It's worth it from the team and the jobs. It's worth it because there will be profits and money for the company and the investors. But then as you talk about what we will have shown is this will be the largest commercial application of fusion ever. And so where can we grow with that then? Where you've proven a part of fusion, today's fusion, and then you have the opportunity with everything you've learned and if the investors are still willing because they feel good enough about you to move on to the next stage and, and to see where you go and where you can take that. And it's the challenge, again, as you, as you I know you're looking to make sure this applies to your, your, your audience. It's a challenge we all go through with any new project, new, new product, new manufacturing. What's going to make it worth it? And then what do we learn? And, and then when you take those, the, the lessons you learn from the things you did right and, and a lot of times the things you did wrong, you learn more from. And how do you apply that to, to what's next? And that's where when you have a big team and you really learn, that's where the opportunity gets interested because now you've got, you know, you've got a machine that's not just this plant behind me and the things we're doing, but the machine is the people. And what can you do with those people? Yeah, no, no doubt about it. That intellectual capital is is humongous when it comes right down to it. So 
All right. So Todd, we're getting close to the end of time. And so the last thing I'll have you do uh, after this next question is, you know, tell us how to get in touch with you, learn more about, you know, the business, et cetera. But before we get to that, I want your thoughts on like today's market for startups, because it's tricky. The capital markets, both public and private, are different than they've been in at least a decade, probably about 15 years. So just give us your, your kind of thoughts on what people should be aware of, consider what have you learned along the way that maybe can, can apply to today and, and help people who are listening. Yeah. So the financial markets are really hard, you know, and, uh, and whether it's pandemic, inflation, war, you know, uh, the capital markets are looking and, and a lot of what they're doing is they're saying, well, things that are just based on a story where you're growing revenue, but you're not profitable, you don't have a, path to grow profits, uh, they're separating a lot of those out, you know, or the growth multiples are coming down and, and public companies, private companies getting funded less. Now, it's actually a really good time to start an early stage venture. There's people, there's technologies, there is money that's out there doing it. Everyone's just doing a reset and they're trying to separate the wheat from the chaff on things. And that's in, in all of us. So what do we do? We have to execute. We have to show that we're worthwhile and prove it and got to work a little harder. But the opportunities are all there. It's just harder to get through them and, and not everyone's, you know, the hit rate's going down. And so, again, well, if you go, you know, you like sports analogies, so do I. We may have thought we were shooting free throws where you need to shoot 70, 80% to be good. Well, now we're uh, hitting baseballs. And 300 makes you an all-star. But even if you look at those, well, how many, based on how many pitches, you know, you got to hit. You know, it's three out of 10, but maybe they see five pitches, you know, to get there. So maybe if you're hitting one of 15 balls and getting a hit in baseball, you're an all-star. What does that mean here? You need more at-bats. You got to have lots of at-bats. You got to treat everyone seriously. You got to beat out every hit you can get and be happy with it. You got to work a little harder to get a little less and survive. And that may mean for some businesses, you're having to reduce costs or you're cutting deals to, to make sure you survive and get through. But again, the people who get through, there will be a really good opportunity or two because you may have less competition. You may be leaner and meaner. You may have found different opportunities. And so for that cycle, for, for me, for us, it's um, how do you get lean and mean and how do you get more swings and at-bats and, and, um, and be creative to find places you can find a, a value faster. We, we found another new product we're working on that we won't do for be able to make for three to five years, but people are interested in that. And sometimes because they're interested in that, well, now they're starting to buy today's product too. So you got to be a little tougher. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, I'll just kind of close with this last comment and let, let you tell us, you know, how to get in touch with you is that, you know, I've, I've talked to multiple business owners and entrepreneurs over the years and some that have not, have not made it during downturns of, you know, economic cycles or whatever the case may be. And, and quite honestly, sometimes it's it's unavoidable, right? I mean, there if you're in a certain type of industry and things hit just the right way, you may not survive, right? And that and that's just the reality. But there are too many times that entrepreneurs want to blame economic conditions for the failure of their business when a lot of it was decisions that they did or did not make during that period of time to pull themselves through that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really good. And I'm sure you see a lot of that and advise a lot of people on that, you know, 
when's the best time to plant a tree, you know, yesterday, you know, yeah. and, and what's the best time to, to change your strategy, do your forecasting, as you said earlier, have those tough conversations. I was talking about your sales partner, your operating partner, your customers immediately, because either you're, you know, making those changes and those tough things, or they're going to be made for you eventually. I don't know. I mean, so well, I do know some things, and which is that if you don't do it, you usually end up regretting it. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a great way to end, Todd. So just tell people how to get in touch with Shine Technologies, how to get in touch with you, whatever you'd like to share there. Yeah, absolutely. So our website is uh, www.shinefusion, S-H-I-N-E-F-U-S-I-N-I-O-N.com. I can be reached at uh, T-O-D-D-A-S-M-U-T-H at shinefusion.com and love to hear from people and their interest in the world. And uh, we'd love for you guys to check us out and see what we're doing and tell us what you think. That sounds great. Todd, really appreciate the time today. Appreciate the interview. Appreciate the, the candor and, uh, and your ability to tell a story and share your, your successes and failures along the way. Austin, thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. I, I, and as I see, we talk about sports. Now I'm seeing the baseball stuff behind you and Fenway Park. And I have other questions, but I'll have to ask those to you at another time. So thank you again for having me. You bet. Thanks, Doug. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Arizona time for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.